Our sermon this morning is entitled, God's Wee Rascal, and our scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 28, beginning at verse 10. As we prepare to read God's word together, let's bow in prayer. Lord, we know that these words are written through the inspiration of your spirit, and only you can use them to change us and to transform us that we may grow in your likeness. And so we ask that as your word is read, that our hearts would be open to your leading. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We'll begin in Genesis chapter 28, beginning at verse one. I'm gonna begin at verse one. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Paddan Aram, to the house of your mother's father. Take a wife for yourself there, from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you may become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham, so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Paddan Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Paddan Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalathah, the sister of Neboeth, the daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he had already had. Beginning at verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran, When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth and its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, 
and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all of that you give me, I will give you a tenth. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Today we are, as you know, beginning a new series, and it's entitled Jacob, God's Wee Rascal. And the reason I chose that uh, particular phrase, or heading rather, was simply on the basis that several weeks ago, in fact a couple of months ago now, I came across a new book called God's Rascal, and it focuses on Jacob. And I would have to confess I'm awfully fond of Jacob. He's one of the characters in scripture that, and I don't think I'm alone in this, that we identify with very readily. He seems to grow in stages that we can grow in, and he has experiences we can identify with. And so that's why over these next three Sundays, we'll be spending our Sunday mornings with Jacob. Also over the next three weeks, we are going to have multiple conversations about where will we spend Thanksgiving. And as families and as individuals, we'll be asking, are we going to Granny's? Are we going to Uncle John's? Where are we going? Some of us, of course, will fly and travel uh, for Thanksgiving Day. Others will meet locally. And Thanksgiving, of course, is a day just filled with fun. Having meals with those we love, family, friends. We reminisce about previous Thanksgivings and Christmas, and inevitably someone will say, do you remember when Granddad said, and do you remember when Aunt Julie said, and those conversations will abound across the country. We will probably uh, eat far too much food uh, and miss a little football as we slip into a diabetic coma, and we will be enlarged, let's put it that way, as a result of Thanksgiving. Now, if you travel to Scotland to sit down with my family and say, tell us a little about family meals and fun times growing up and what was Richard like as a wee boy, they may not necessarily give you the picture I want to give you. And they would tell you that no one in my family thought I would be going into the ministry. No one, not just my family, anyone who knew me. Uh, I was not always a good boy. And let me describe it as gently as I can in a Sunday morning service and say I was a little mischievous. And we'll just leave it right there. That mischievousness has not left me. If you know me at all, you know I have this finely tuned sense of humor. Uh, Granted, that's a minority report, but nonetheless, uh, it's, it's there and a little twinkle in my eye. In fact, last Sunday morning after the 8.30 service, I was more than a little mischievous again where I was playing peekaboo with a two-year-old around the baptismal font, and I was down in all fours, as you can see, and it was so much fun. And now I have a new bestie. We're we're like this, and it was a lot of fun. 
My parents would describe me, especially my mother, would describe me and say when I was growing up, he's a wee soul, more to be pitied than scolded. <laughs> they would describe me as a wee rascal. Uh, and that was the most polite thing uh, they could say about me. Now, that's the Scottish equivalent of, bless his heart. That's, that's basically, basically what they're saying. And I suspect that most of us, if we knew Jacob well when he was growing up, would say exactly that about him. Oh, it's Jacob, bless his heart. And there would be a sense of frustration in there. But it is a remarkable story. And the more we begin to become familiar with it, the more I would argue that we see ourselves in the story of Jacob. Can we rightly describe Jacob as God's wee rascal? Yes, I think we can. And Jacob is worth looking at because it's a story for those who struggle and stumble and fumble in their faith. It focuses on those of us who are full of good intentions and make three steps forward only to discover the next day we take two steps back. It's a story of a man who was more prodigal than prodigy. A man who experienced breakthroughs and then breakdowns. That was Jacob. And my sense is that we like Jacob not only because we identify with some of it, not only because we see ourselves in that passage, but I think we identify with and appreciate the story of Jacob because we find ourselves having the experiences Jacob had today. Jacob's story, to put it in its historical context, was 2,000 years before the birth of Christ. It happened amongst Bedouins in the south of Israel. Jacob came from a spectacular family. His grandfather was Abraham. His father was Isaac. Passages in Genesis are filled with God interacting with Abraham and Isaac. In fact, when God interacts with a number of folks in the Old Testament, and to some extent, even in the New, it's mentioned, we read, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it doesn't start out that way. In fact, it starts out in difficult circumstances. Jacob was one of two boys. Esau was his brother. They were born moments apart, and they were so competitive, the scripture teaches us, that in fact, they wrestled in the womb of their mom, Rebecca. And I could take, oh, excuse me, I could take forever telling you the story, so let me read it to you from Genesis 27. And we read, the babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? And so she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first who came out was red, 
and his whole body was like a hairy garment, and so they called him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping at Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. And that gives you a sense of what's going on. They remain competitive throughout their days. Esau, Jacob were very different. Esau was loved by his father Isaac, I mentioned moments ago. Esau loved the outdoors. Esau loved to hunt. If Esau was a boy in Greenville today, or a young man, and you went into his room in the closet, would be layer upon layer upon layer of camel. That was Esau. He loved the outdoors. He loved the rugged life. If you were to define him today, he could be defined in the following terms. He was all about bucks and ducks and trucks. That was Esau. Now, Jacob's over here, and he's very different. I have to tell you, when I first moved to South Carolina and was in Walmart, and I noticed a young man dressed in camel, I wanted to go up and say, I can see you, but, but I, I didn't. I, I didn't. I, I, I tried to resist. I tried to resist. And the other slightly surprising part was I was watching him and he was buying yogurt, which was not quite the macho image I had in my mind. He was buying tubs of yogurt and he had on a camouflage tie. I thought, wow, a well-dressed hunter with a camouflage tie. I thought that was a touch of class. It was very nice. Jacob, however, very different. Jacob would rather spend Saturdays in the library than a wild weekend in the wilderness. Jacob understood his family's history and the heritage. I imagine as Jacob was a wee boy, he would say to his folks at night, Dad, tell me about the time when God interacted with you. Tell me about Abraham. Tell me about Sarah. And as Isaac shared with young Jacob all the stories of their past, those stories, I think, became very real for Jacob. But as the years went on, I think Jacob found himself doing several things. And the first was this, that he was stepping back from his faith. Moments of deep, abiding, heartfelt, wrestling, dependent prayer were a thing of the past. The stories had become simply stories to old people in another generation. Jacob drifted in his faith. He opted out. And there's not much sign of the hand of God in Jacob's life when you come to the section we read in Genesis 28. In fact, as you know, Jacob had deceived his brother, asked him to give him his birthright for a bowl of stew. And Esau really didn't care for it. And so, sure enough, he gave it to him. And then Jacob dresses up as his brother, pretends to be Esau, 
kneels in front of his father. His father lays hands on him and prays for him and gives him the blessing that should have been Esau's. Stole from his brother, deceived his father. And Genesis 27 tells us this, and this is Esau speaking. He says, isn't he rightly named Jacob? He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. And the name Jacob means deceiver, crook, manipulator, cheat. That was Jacob. Like so many in scripture, the individual's name is a reflection of their character. That's what was going on right here. And now we come to chapter 28. And we read Jacob left Beersheba because his brother had said to him, Jacob, the next time you and I meet and the term for, of mourning for my father's death is over, I will kill you. And that's how serious it had become. And his mother said to him, Jacob, you need to leave. Go to your uncle in Haran. And we read a little of that in the early part of the chapter. And Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. It was about 500 miles. That's a long way, 3,000 years ago. And when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. And he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, on Sunday morning, whenever we come to a passage of Scripture, one of the things we try to do is look at the historical context. We've done a little of that this morning, explaining the family connections and Jacob and Esau's background. But in addition to the historical context, we're also asking ourselves, what is the literary structure of this passage? And by that, I mean this. Why does a biblical writer use particular words in a particular manner in order to teach us? And we see that right here. And it's rather remarkable. Because the passage says, Jacob left Beersheba, set out for Haran, and when he reached a certain place. Now why doesn't he simply say, Jacob left Beersheba, set out for Haran, and he stopped for the night because the sun had set. So why does the biblical author put in the words when he reached a certain place? The word in Hebrew is bamakum. It has the definite article about it. When he reached the place. And as you read it, your ears begin to pin back and say, wait a minute, what is going on here? There's a sense of anticipation, a sense of expectation. When he reached the place, what is about to happen here? That's what's going on. So let me pause for a second and suggest this. And this is the first principle I want you to take home this morning. God delights in a lost cause. We see it all over scripture. God delights in a lost cause. Here was Jacob, stolen from his brother, deceived his father, 
had grown up surrounded by significant wealth and now was homeless. He was penniless with no future. And all that he had hoped for and longed for had turned to ashes in his hands. And it ended in disaster. Seeking to manipulate, seeking to control, seeking to deceive, and it ended in absolute disaster. But God is far from finished with Jacob. Jacob had just walked, according to Old Testament scholars, some 40 plus miles, almost 50 miles that day. A dry and barren place. And did you think for a moment that Jacob thought, I will have a transformative experience with God? No. But he delights in lost causes. He delights to speak in and through those difficult, barren places where there is no hope of a future. And what's going on here is this, that God is about to break into the life of Jacob in a spectacular fashion. And you may be here this morning, and for you, over the last few weeks, your job has come to an end. Or it may not be a job that's come to an end. Perhaps for you, you're wrestling about a relationship that's come to an end. And you've no idea about the future and hopes and dreams and possibilities came to nothing. Or perhaps tension in a marriage or the death of a loved one. And things are not going well and you cannot work out what's going on. And you're thinking, where on earth is God in the middle of this? And yes, I'm at a certain place. Yes, I'm in that place where nothing is happening and there is no future. And it is pretty hopeless. Whether you're here in the sanctuary or watching on our television broadcast or our live stream, you may be able to see yourself in this passage. You've reached a certain place. And notice what happens. God gives Jacob a dream. Why a dream? Why doesn't he send an Old Testament prophet to sit down with Jacob and say, now, Jacob, talk to me a little here. Tell me a little about what you've been going through. Give me a sense of how you feel. Give me a sense of what your future holds. How are you going to get yourself out of this? Talk to me a little so I can try and help. But none of that takes place. Why? Because remember who Jacob is. The master manipulator. The deceiver. I suspect Jacob had a silver tongue. And he could easily have manipulated another person. But when Jacob finds himself pushed into a corner and the only thing he can do is be quiet and listen. No justification, no excuses, no ability to say, but wait, wait a minute, what about this? What? None of that. And God begins to speak. 
Do you remember when we started, we said this is a story for those who struggle and stumble and fumble their way through their faith? Remember we said, full of good intentions, two steps forward, one step back. More prodigal than prodigy, yes. Breakthrough than breakdowns and the frustrations. Or maybe I've described you already. Maybe you have already opted out. Maybe you have given up in your prayer life. Maybe you have marginalized and minimized what used to be a living reality in a genuine, profound faith, and somehow you've drifted. Now he's speaking to you this morning. And what does he say? Well, he says this, I am the Lord the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, and I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. To a lost cause, homeless, penniless, no future, no sense of where he's going. Disappointment, hurt, yes, but also the victim of his own poor choices, bad decisions, and sinfulness. And I put it under the heading of a covenant-keeping God. Now, why is that important? Why do we use that phrase, covenant? Why do you hear it some Sundays when we're talking about baptism? A covenant promise means this, a strong, unbreakable, personal promise of love and care. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. He establishes and reminds Jacob of all that he knew growing up, and I am with you and will watch over you, and wherever you go, I will bring you back to this place, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. In other words, Jacob, please hear this. Please grasp this. I will not give up on you. I will not abandon you. I will not leave you in that isolated position. I am with you. I am with you. I'll not walk away, regardless of what you've been through. You're mine. You're mine. And I've got you. Jacob thought it was all over, and it was only beginning. And in a dry, bleak, desert place, God shows up and transforms Jacob. Does that mean Jacob will be perfect from here on out? No. Does it mean he will never make another mistake? No. And we're about to see them in subsequent Sundays. Does it mean he's the perfect individual? No. But please understand this. When Jacob wakes up, what does he say? He says this. Surely the Lord was in this place and I never knew it. Heart and disappointed dreams come to nothing. 
difficulties and challenges you can't get over. I am with you. I will never leave you. And when you get upon your knees, and when you seek his presence, and when you turn to him seeking his grace, he will be right there for you. He never walks away. He never abandons. He never gives up because he's the God of the lost cause. He's the God of his children. He is our Father. And this week, whatever you have on your schedule, however demanding it is, however distracted you become, put him as your number one priority. Stop stepping back. Stop opting out and go in the other direction with a profound dependency on him, allowing him to retune your deepest affections and welcome you back. That's the story of Jacob. And that's why Jacob could say, the Lord was in this. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning. And we thank you for its power in our lives. And thank you there are moments on Sunday mornings when you seek to leap off the page into our hearts and minds and souls. And for those of us this week who have struggled, been far from you, enable us, please, to give up and surrender all other things and rest in you. Father, bless us, please. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.